So Lord, we, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, that when we look, when we knock, when we ask, you show up. Lord, when we seek your face, you're present. And I pray, Lord, that in this room this morning, Lord, that lives would be changed, that relationships would be healed, that emptiness would be filled by your love. Lord, we thank you for this time of worship and we pray as we continue by looking into your word, Lord, that, that worship wouldn't stop here. But that we would come with open hearts and open minds, ready to hear your word and to seek you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. You all look lovely today. Oh, so beautiful. I gotta take a drink real quick. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> Are you okay? It's really a ploy to get you to come on Friday, so please, Val will be doing comedy and music. <clears throat> and, <laughs> and dancing. <laughs> Man, I, I didn't even script this. This is way better than my intro. I like it. Well, with that, welcome to week three of our sermon series called Out. And I want to start this morning with a question. Have you ever had to wait <laughs> on Val? No. <laughs> have you ever had to wait? Yes. I'm, it's safe to say we all have. If you've gone to a restaurant, you had to wait for your food to come out. If you've gone to Taco Bell drive through you certainly know the struggle. Okay. Well, I want to share a story with you this morning about how recently I had to wait. So most of you know I'm a giant nerd, and I love Marvel movies. And we all know recently there was a big Marvel movie. There were a couple big Marvel movies, but it was like the movie to end all Marvel movies. It's literally called Endgame. So how am I supposed to wait for that? Am I right? <laughs> all right. So... I knew that the weekend it was coming out, number one, I had to work Friday morning, so I wasn't going opening night. And then opening weekend, I'm supposed to be out of town, so I'm reasoning with myself, you're not going opening weekend. And I, okay. I will avoid social media, as in not to have any spoilers. Well, I made it all the way to Sunday evening, which is pretty impressive, because I'm kind of impatient and a rare opportunity of time presented itself. And I was like, I'm going to the movie, yes! So I get on Fandango and I'm scrolling all of the theaters and there's not a single ticket available in Colorado Springs, Pueblo, or Denver. 
and not just for Sunday night. No, I had to wait to book my ticket for Tuesday evening. How rude of those people to take my seat at the movie theater. Well, unfortunately, this morning we're talking about selfishness. Yes, you can laugh at me. All right, so just like I had to watch in-game, our group that we'll be focusing on today had been waiting. And they'd been waiting a lot longer than a couple weeks or a day. Oh, see, the Jews, they had been waiting and waiting. They believed that something was coming in the future that would make everything different. It would bring justice and peace and freedom and prosperity, and they called it the age to come. See, they prophesied that this would happen, and they waited. And every first century Jew who believed in God was looking forward to this. And they were all asking the same question, how do I get a piece of this? How do I know things are good to, good to go? How do I know that I'm going to inherit the kingdom of God? They were all saying, I want to be a part of that. So let's turn this morning to Mark chapter 10 to begin our story. And the character of the story may be someone you're kind of familiar with. And he's asking the same question. How do I inherit God's promise? So Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this man, he's often referred to as the rich young ruler, and maybe you've heard that title before, but it actually never shows up in scripture. You see, Mark never identifies who this guy is, but we piece this together by looking at all the different gospel accounts. So in Matthew, it says this guy was young, So he had his whole life ahead of him. Over in Luke, he is called a ruler. So he's probably in charge somewhere in the synagogue. He's a religious leader of some sort. He has influence. He has power. And then later on in Mark, it tells us that he was wealthy. So you add all those together and you get the rich young ruler. He has power, prestige, position. He has everything. Yet remarkably enough... He's still spiritually hungry. He still feels like something is missing. And I want you to note how he approaches Jesus. It says he ran up to him. He knelt down before him, and he refers to him as good teacher. And he does this all on a public highway. Like, he does not care what other people think. He's risking ridicule and humiliation, but he doesn't care. He's just asking and hungry to know what Jesus has to say. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now what I need you to understand and what I want you to see is the sincerity here. He doesn't present to Jesus a trick question, which is what a lot of the religious leaders did back then. He's incredibly sincere and he really just wants to know. He's before Jesus, he's on his knees, he says, I'm living a good life, I'm doing the right things, but something still doesn't feel right. It feels like something is missing. Has anybody ever felt that way in their faith? You're trying to do the right stuff, and a lot of Christians find themselves in this place. 
They're going through the motions, doing the right things. Life is fairly put together, but something is missing. See, I think Bono hit it on the head with his song, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You're welcome. (laughs) There's something else. Something missing, and maybe you've felt that way. So he asks this question, and it's a powerful question, and it's a question that Christians have been asking for generations, but it's the wrong question. It's the question, what must I do? Now see, the reason it's the wrong question is because it's about earning. What must I do to earn my way to heaven? What must I do to earn my righteousness? I have to do something to merit eternal life. There has to be something I need to do. There has to be a list or a box I need to check, something. You just tell me and I'll do it. But it's all about earning. Most of you know that I'm in my master's degree right now. And I I, uh, found myself asking questions a lot of the time of what must I do? What must I do to get into graduate school? Nowadays, what, it, what must I do to stay in graduate school? <laughs> what must I do to get an A, to become a good counselor, to not get sued, to get an internship? And a lot of the answers I get are really helpful, and some of them are not. And just like this young man, we often find ourselves asking the wrong question to the wrong people Or we might ask the right question to the wrong people. But I want you to note that this guy didn't ask the religious leaders. He asked Jesus. Because he, if he had asked the religious leaders, they would have given him one of two options. The first option they would have given him was obey the law. And by that they meant obey the law according to the way I interpret it. You need to do this, don't do that follow this, live like this, and they had all these rules. Now, without question, the law was important, and it still is, but they had all these rules and all these regulations. They said, if you want eternal life, you have to follow them perfectly. But the problem is nobody could do that. And Peter he actually confronts the religious leaders about this in Acts chapter 15. Verse 10, it says, So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? And he asked something I ask my professors on the daily basis. Why are you making things so hard? (laughs) He says, you can't even follow these rules. How do you expect these people to follow them? Yet they would tell you, you want to be saved, obey the law. The second thing that they might have said to you is, well, if you want to inherit eternal life, join our club. Become like one of us. Become a Sadducee. Become a Pharisee. Then you enjoy, the in this present age, you get to enjoy the security of knowing that you'll inherit the age to come. Now, just to give you a little framework... The Pharisees are like our blue-collar club, and then the Sadducees are what we would call elitists, 
But there's also a third sect of Judaism, which were the Essenes, and that was born out of dislike for the other two. So this is the society that this guy is used to. <laughs> and there were two answers this man would be expecting from Jesus, either obey the law or join a club. So when he comes to Jesus, he's kind of going, which is it? Do I obey the law? Do I join the club? What do I do? And Jesus begins where this guy would expect him to start. Mark chapter 10, verse 18. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Now, in case you missed it, that's six of the Ten Commandments. And it's the six that prohibit wrong action and wrong attitude against our fellow man. They all deal with how we treat one another and what we can do for one another. But the four that he leaves out are the ones that deal with our interaction with God. Because that's the part this guy is missing. So Jesus says, well, you do all this stuff. And look at the guy's answer. Verse 20, teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Translation, I've done everything humanly possible. And he's not saying he's perfect. He's just saying, listen, I've done everything in my power to do all the right things. Because for him, keeping the law was all about what you see. It was all about the external stuff. But what Jesus realizes, and this guy doesn't, is that there's an inner change that is needed that he's overlooking completely. And Paul speaks to having a similar outlook before his conversion. Philippians 3.6 I was zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. And that's where this guy is. He's doing all the right stuff. He's dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's. Outwardly, he's doing everything right. But inwardly, he's realizing that something isn't right. Something is missing. Otherwise, why would he have come to Jesus? Why would he have gotten on his face? Why would he have asked this question? This guy has everything. He's eager, he's spiritually hungry, he's outwardly very put together. He's reverent and respectful, he's morally upright, you could even call him religious. He's young, he's influential, he's wealthy, he's smart, he has everything, and yet, here he is at the feet of Jesus saying, what's missing? I love this next part. Let's look what Jesus said, verse 21. Look at, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And it's absolutely critical you understand what happened in this verse. Jesus loves this guy. He's not shaming him. He's not trying to make it difficult for him. What he shared with him is a genuine expression of love and concern, and yet he still said, I love you, but I can't bend the standard for you. 
So what he leaves us with are three statements that leave us scratching our heads. What does this mean for me now? The first statement is following Jesus costs everything. Now, some of you are having a panic attack right now. You want confirmation right now that what he said to this guy is not a blanket statement for every believer. So I need you to come back with me and listen to this. No. (laughs) Jesus is not asking every believer to sell everything that they own. Not every believer is called to a vow of poverty. For instance, tax collectors made a lot back in the day, and they made a good portion of it illegally. Yet Jesus called Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him as a disciple. And when he calls him, he doesn't tell him to sell everything. In fact, later on, you, um, you see Jesus actually telling believers to use their worldly wealth to help other people. Because you can't use what you don't have. So no, this isn't a blanket statement for all believers. God doesn't want every believer to give everything. But... He does want every believer to be willing to give everything. Or let me say it in a little different way. Not every believer is called to poverty, but every believer is called to obedience. And that's going to look different for every single one of us. Now for this young man, his problem was his wealth. Jesus' prescription was to rid him of the problem. The only thing is the problem was his money. So he says, get rid of all of your money. One thing that Jesus demands of his followers is that we're all in. That we're not wasting our lives on ourselves, that we're living as part of his greater purpose. In other words, he wants us, when we come to faith to him, to surrender everything to him. And whatever he hands back to us, it's still his We're just stewards, and he wants us to be good stewards. So this rich, young ruler's issue wasn't that he had money. It was that his money had him. What he had owned him. Verse 22, At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. And here's the key phrase, He went away. It doesn't say Jesus pushed him away. And this, this is the heart of selfishness. Selfishness defined is to be devoted to or caring only for oneself and concerned primarily with one's own interests, regardless of others. This man makes a tragic and selfish decision to walk away from Jesus. And this decision reflects that he has a greater love for his possessions than for all that Christ offered to him. What a sobering picture. And that leads us to our next hard truth. Faithfulness is harder for the rich. Verse 23 to 25. Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? This amazed them. But Jesus said again, Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And now, again, I know what a lot of you are thinking. Poor rich people. Whoo, that's not me. 
So to bring it a little closer to home, I'm going to share with you some research that compares American income to the rest of the world. So if you are a two-person household making $15,000 a year, which is considered poverty in the United States, you are still in the top 18% of the world's richest people. Or let me put it this way, if you're a family of two living in poverty in the United States, you still on average make six times more money than the average person. If you drove a car here this morning and you own that car and it runs, the door's not hanging off, probably even if the door is hanging off, you're in the top 18%. If when you leave this service and you go to your living place, whether rented or owned, and it has doors and windows and running water and heat and electricity, you're in the top 18% of the wealthiest people in the world. If this morning, while you were putting that perfect outfit, outfit together, and you had to choose which pair of shoes was going to match that perfect outfit, because you have more than one pair, you're in the top 18% of the richest people in the world. Now please hear this, this is not a guilt trip. You should celebrate and be thankful for what you've been blessed with. But what I do want you to understand this morning is by virtue of living in this country, freedom or faithfulness is harder for us because we live in a materialistic, consumeristic country. And the more that materialism sucks the life out of us, the more we have, the less we understand need. And we need Jesus. But we forget that we need Jesus when we have so much. And you don't even have to have money in order for it to have an effect on you. People underestimate the effect money has on us. We don't think it affects us as much as it does. And yet we constantly choose money over other priorities. We use that magic word, investment. Yes, and then all of our spending becomes justified. So I want, I want to take some time and share a little story about how I used, learned to use the word investment. So my grandma Adele, she was by far the best shopper, the best bargain shopper in the world. I think, there she is, look how beautiful she is. Yes. All right, so this lady, she looks innocent, but let me tell you. <laughs> if there was a sale, she knew when it was, what it was, and how many times she could use the coupon, okay? <laughs> she would split her orders, you know, like, here's a coupon, use that five times, new order. Like, she was that kind of shopper. All right, so each year, she would take me shopping because it was one of our favorite things to do. We would travel the two and a half hours to Casper, Wyoming, which was the nearest mall, <laughs> yes, and Josh knows the struggle. Um, <laughs> and we would shop. And I would be in wherever, the mall, Target. And she'd come up to me, and I'd have my purchases in my hands. And I knew the two questions that were coming. How much was it? And is it on sale? Hmm. 
I wasn't as good as her, but she taught me her tricks. And so I've moved forward in my life, and I have to, I'm making my own money now, right? Yeah. Providing for myself, and I have to have a budget. <laughs> the only problem is I still like to shop, and I no longer have grandma sneaking things out of my cart to go purchase it for me later, or her constant reasoning with me that it will be a gift. Yes. No, no. I have to find all my own sales now. So, fast forward today, when I go shopping, I go generally with my roommates, these two lovely ladies, and we love to shop, okay? All three of us. Um, and we also, we like to get each other's opinions, especially on whether or not an item is worth the amount. So it never fails that once in a while, one of us will really want something, but in our own minds, we can't justify spending the asking price. And so as good roommates and close friends do, one of the other two of us will pipe up and say, it's an investment, and we're good to go. <laughs> Aha! <laughs> because we're willing to invest in ourselves but we tend to have a little different mindset when it comes to the things God has provided. How often do we choose to make a little more money than spending time with our family? How often do we choose to invest in our future or ourselves instead of investing in the kingdom or what God wants to do? Do you know the number one cause of divorce in the US? It's money. Do you know the number one reason Christians give for compromising their integrity in the workplace? It's to make a little more money. This isn't a new problem. No, go back to the first century. The idea that wealth could be seen as a curse, it blew the disciples' minds because it was a common Jewish belief that wealth was a sign of God's love. If you were wealthy, God was happy with you. If you were poor, you'd messed up, and God was mad at you. But Jesus takes this whole idea, and he flips it on its head. Look at the reaction in verse 26. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. <laughs> Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking... It is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. So this verse, it says the disciples were astounded. It could say that they were mad, that they were ticked. They're like, really, Jesus? Really? You, you do realize that you just made it impossible to earn our salvation. And Jesus says, exactly. You can't earn your way to heaven. Any chance on your merit, on your achievement, will never get you there. Apart from the grace of God, none of us can be saved. Which leads us to our third and final head shaker. Freedom is found in sacrifice. Now this is when Peter speaks up. 
And as some of us know, Peter always has to say something. And there it's no different in this passage. Mark 10, 28 through 31. Then Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. In this passage, Peter is having a what about me moment. And Jesus says, look, Peter, this life I'm calling you to, this life of discipleship, it's a combination of promise that I have great things for you and persecution. It's a balance between blessing and suffering. In other words, following me, it's costly. But the cost pales in comparison to what you're giving to. In other words, Peter viewed following Jesus as a sacrifice. Jesus viewed it as an investment. And there's a huge difference between a sacrifice and an investment. You see, Peter's view was internally focused, and Jesus' view was eternally focused. Ultimately, what Jesus is asking of the rich young ruler, of his disciples, of us, is obedience. Obedience with what he has blessed us with. And there's three major resources that we've been given. And those are time, talents, and treasures. Whether you're aware of it or not, those are blessings from God. Those are resources that God is calling you to be obedient with. And yet, we tend to be kind of selfish sometimes. We tend to be able to justify the reason that We don't want to spend that time, use that talent, or share our treasure. Martin Luther put it this way, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But whatever I placed in God's hands, I still possess. So this morning as we end this service, I want to ask you, what are you still holding tightly to? Which of those three resources are you being selfish with? Is it time? Is it your talent? Your treasures? In Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, it says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So right now in this moment, I want you to close your eyes. 
And something that not everybody knows is a lot of the time anxiety presents itself as a physical symptom. And when you hear that, those three words, time, treasure, talent, if you kind of get a tightness in your chest, I want to ask you, is that what you're still holding on to? Is that the one thing that God's asking you to be obedient with? You see, Anchor Church, the local church, it runs off of those time and talent and treasure, and it's largely shaped by what we're obedient with. So it could be as simple as coming Friday night to sing a goofy song. It could be obedience in tithing. It could be obedience in giving of your time and volunteering. I don't know what Jesus is asking you this morning, but I want this time as we sing King of My Heart, I want you to reflect and use this as a time of prayer and reflection and say, Lord, what have I not let go of? What am I not being obedient with? What am I being selfish with? Lord, you are so good to us. Lord, I've found that when I'm obedient with my time, when I'm obedient with my talent and my treasures, it's always a lot less worse than I think it's going to be. In fact, it's usually a huge blessing. So Lord, I pray that this morning that we would be honest with ourselves. Lord, that you would search each and every one of us and that you would prompt us in where we need to be obedient unto you. Lord, that we'd have conversations with one another, that we'd have conversations with the leaders and say, I feel like God's calling me to this. Because, Lord, it's only because of you and by you that we have any of those resources. And Lord, we want to be a church that honors you with them. Thank you for this opportunity to reflect on who you are and how you've blessed us. In Jesus' name. <laughs>